Hello! Dipping in to give you a warning that, as per usual, this is another spoilerific episode. So, if you haven't read Witch Hat Atelier by Kamome Shirahama, and you wish to do so going in unknowingly, this is your final warning. And, as always, feel free to leave us a good review on your preferred podcast app. It will help us with visibility and boost our egos. Finally, I'll wrap up with the obligatory social media plug. Tumblr.com slash The Art of Pod, at The Art of Podcast on Twitter, and at The Art of Comics Pod on Instagram. Let's go! Hi, I'm Paul, a comic creator who probably shouldn't have had an afternoon nap earlier. How about you? Hi, I'm Joss. And by the time this episode is out, I'm already ecstatic over how incredibly fucking gay all of Europe is going to be this weekend because it's Eurovision time, baby! Okay, so this week we are talking about Witch Hat Atelier. We're only doing the first volume because this is an ongoing manga and we decided that whenever we're going to do an ongoing manga, we'll just discuss the first volume so that we don't have to spend a massive amount of money. Witch Hat Atelier is the story of Coco, a girl obsessed by magic. But in a world where magic can only be practiced by those born with a talent, all she can do is dream, until she meets a real witch, catches a glimpse of something that nobody should see, discovers the secret to casting magic, and is pulled into a world of witches. Again, yours is so fucking tight and precise. Go on, hit me with yours. Coco wants nothing more than to be a witch. In fact, she wants it so bad that when an actual witch visits her family business, she breaks the one rule of not watching a magic wielder cast her spell. One fatal outcome later, and Coco got her wish of becoming a witch. But at what cost? Yeah, similar, actually, if we've gone for a similar thing. I guess that's because the story really just has a shortened to the point setup, after which everything changes. It's just that my blurb sounded like a fucking tongue twister, because I sat and practiced it out loud, and I was like... Bleh, 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 bleh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, blurbs aren't easy. They aren't. And the thing is, I say this, and every time I just literally jet mine out in less than a minute. It's always, I find it's always easier blurbing someone else's book. Oh my god, if I had to blurb my own stuff, god help me. Yeah, it's a nightmare. Yeah, I, I would be, my blurb would be like, I spent a lot of time on this, it's cool, I guess. <laughs> please read it, please. Please. <laughs> please. Talking of that, Witch Hat Atelier is sort of in your realm, having written about witches yourself. I have a feeling that you've got opinions with a capital O, am I right? <laughs> I <laughs> I do. <laughs> yeah, I'm looking forward to them. <laughs> so the thing is, I know that I, I, I get the feeling that the entire world loves this manga. It's universally mm. adored. Yeah, it certainly seems to be popular enough. Yeah, yeah. It's also getting an anime adaptation, am I correct? Oh, I didn't know that, but it seems like a natural shoe-in for one, to be honest. Yeah, I think it does. So, I, fun fact, I bought Volume 1 back in 2019 on a trip to the Netherlands. Oh, so this has been sitting on your shelf for a long time. Yes, because back then it was just like in the whisper works of being this like magnum opus. So I immediately recognized that the art is beautiful. So I picked it up and then I could just like never find the, the you know, the, the ever going courage and never find the time or energy to invest yourself and immerse yourself in something new. Yep, yep, know that feeling. Yeah, and since I bought volume two and three, because this is my toxic trait, is that I start collecting something without knowing if I like it. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god, so you, 
you didn't just stick with volume one. You actually bought a bunch of them. I bought two more, but for, for this, I only read volume one because I was terrified that I would mix stuff up and start to spoil oh. our stuff. So I, I strictly read volume one for this. This is the first time I think neither of us have read something and we're both coming into it completely fresh. Yes, this is this marks the first where we're both going in unknowingly. Right. I imagine this will probably happen a little more a little more often from now on. You say, and then I know for a fact that the next ones are yours, question mark? At least running Oh, that's right. Is it Walking yeah. Man, Running Man? The Walking yeah, Man. Yeah, we're doing the Walking Man. Yeah. It's very different from the Running Man. Really different. <laughs> <laughs> what is Running Man again? The Running Man is a Schwarzenegger movie. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> well, you know. Oh, I would love to see Jiro Taniguchi draw that, actually. But uh, anyway. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, do you want to jump off with your uh, your OPs? Yeah. So I think overall, I had a kind of a positive reaction to this. Mm-hmm. I didn't know what to expect in the slightest. And I found myself at least entertained. You know, I laughed out loud a couple of times. The world sucked me in. And as you mentioned, the art is stunning. To be honest, this it could be a pile of trash with this art, and <laughs> I would eat up every piece of it. Yep. I don't think it was a pile of trash, but you know, I certainly didn't love it unabashedly. The art is not just gorgeous, but it's gorgeous in service of the story, which I really appreciated. Mm-hmm. When the author has clearly spent a very, very long time on a panel or a moment, it's always in service of the character feeling something deep and, and moving or revealing something large about the world or something like that. So I thought that there were the actual sort of overall flow from panel to panel was usually really lovely with a very very few exceptions but the overall kind of pacing and setup felt very very choppy and not clunky exactly but just slightly overly mechanical it's like someone had an idea and this idea was very important to them and they really needed to tell you everything about this idea and then they just put it all in the book i I don't know quite how to express it did you get a similar feeling what what were your impressions (laughs) weirdly enough this time around when i took notes and I tidied them up later. I sectioned my notes in categories. I did like a little bit about the author because I thought that was interesting. I did the positives. Then I did a list of all the characters just to like have that somewhere. Then I gathered together the more quote unquote negatives in the end of the notes. One of my first quote unquote negatives is that if you have read your fair share of manga or watched a lot of anime, this character gallery is incredibly familiar. Yeah, they really feel like reskins of characters from other shows and books. So here's the list you have Coco, which is the main character, as we mentioned, and she lives with her mother. They're both seamstresses. And uh, again, Coco is obsessed with magic. Then you have, and this is where I'm just going to shoot in and say that in this episode, I'm probably not going to say a single fucking name correctly, because these (laughs) names are made on namedgenerator.org. I literally sat today, no joke, doing research, googling these names to see if they are quote-unquote real names. Everything that came up on my search results were these characters, outside of Coco, obviously, which is a real name. But then you have Keyfrey, which is the witch that comes to her store and then ends up adopting her as an apprentice. Then you have Tetia, who is one of the apprentices. She's the light-hearted ditzy one. You have Richa, who is also an apprentice, and she's the quiet one, the more like serious stoic character. And then you have Agate, the third apprentice of Keyfrey. 
she's the rival and the obligatory trope meanie. That's yeah. the, the main cast so far in volume one. And like I said, if you're like me and you were a giant fucking weeb in your teens, this cast is pretty stale because Kifrey is like this Kakashi character for people who are familiar with Naruto. He's like the the wise calm surprisingly kind and inviting character and then you know there's some deep dark shit to him his one of his eyes are always hidden so you're just like "Hmm, what's that about he probably has like some bullshit going on there (laughs) he is literally just magical witch kakashi isn't he (laughs) yeah so far because this is where this is where i also had to remind myself that i know that i'm an overly critical bitch and especially where something doesn't wow me as much as I especially as I wanted it to I can get Mm. unnecessarily critical and mean because I'm disappointed right and I also very much know that a lot of manga sadly needs several volumes to get up on its legs and to actually really get running and that is something that will lose some audience and other audience just they're so okay with that and uh, as a teen I didn't notice this because of course I didn't have all the the experience and knowledge that I have today. But today, I don't have that same patience anymore. How about you? Oh, yeah, I used to sort of run by the kind of three episode or three volume rule. Like if I wasn't into it by episode three, if I wasn't into it by volume three, I would just not giving it a shot. But that's with the volume of stuff that you can read and the amount of stuff coming out and the fact that I've just got much less time on my hands, that's not practical anymore. You know, I'll give something a volume or I'll give it an episode. And if I don't vibe with it right away, meh, done. Mm-hmm. I think I'd read another one of these on Absolutely. balance. I think there's promise here. Hopefully, especially if the characters become much less cookie cutter. Because right now I don't feel any deep connection to them. But they're certainly vividly written. Oh, yeah. They absolutely are. They are, again, very aided by the art style. This is where I will fully disclose that if this wasn't as insanely beautiful as it is, I would not be interested at all. There's nothing here in the terms of story and character writing that makes me go, oh, I want to know more. It is simply because the art is so insanely riveting that I just want to see more of the art and then see if maybe it will finally marry with the writing alongside or down the road. Absolutely. And I think this is a real testament to what, not just pretty art, because it's pretty, but what impactful art can do for a story. The art carried so much of the emotional intensity of this first volume that I just would not have felt without that level of competency behind it at all. You know, the dialogue isn't wonderful. Can I halt you here and ask a question regarding that? Oh, go ahead. Yeah. Did you have a typo in the very first page of your book? Or was that just me being ESL? Ooh, hold on. Um, I didn't notice it. It says, is an athlete always an athlete, even from where birth? Is that correct oh, English? That is not correct, but mine doesn't have that mistake in it. Oh, it interesting. It just says, is an athlete always an athlete even from birth? You've probably got a different printing than I have in that case. Ah, yeah, because I was like, <laughs> already on page one, I was like, oh, uh, okay. So I have a valuable copy with a typo in it, is what you're telling me. Oh, yeah, actually, that kind of thing can be valuable, <laughs> um, especially if you have a first edition. Well, okay, sorry for interrupting. I was just curious if that was me being absolutely stupid or if that was a typo. No, no, bang on. Yeah, I didn't really rate the dialogue. It was it was enough to convey the plot, and but it had that kind of slightly stilted, not as bad as Uzumaki that we discussed, <laughs> but it had that kind of slightly stilted sort of, I'm going to announce the things that are happening on the page right now kind of feel to it. Oh, look, it's a portal. I can see through the portal. Like, <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it, it definitely suffers from that. 
I, I will say, weirdly enough, in Izumaki, the stilted dialogue, like we talked about, it kind of lends itself to the weirdness of Junji Ito. Yes, it can work with horror. I told you how I looked up the artist because I was genuinely interested here about her influences and everything. It said that growing up, she was deeply inspired by Lord of the Rings as well as other famous fantasy books. And I think okay. that's very, very visible because she's going for this kind of like fairy tale, old timey approach to everything. And I would dare say it's quite European esque in its visuals and presentation. Yeah, it certainly has that kind of like, um, uh, yeah, like that sort of Euro fantasy, cod medieval, generic past Euro town basically feel to it. Which you get, and to be fair, you get in a lot of manga. It's often like really obsessed with this kind of setting. It, more than anything, it reminded me of kind of D&D, that sort of like soup of fantasy notions that have all been washed together until they've come back out in a, a sort of familiar feel with some sort of twist. This could be someone's homebrew D&D setting or something like that. It feels, <laughs> feels that way. Oh, yeah, that's a, that's a good uh, description of it. Yeah, so the, there was just enough detail and interest in the world to sort of like pull me in. And again, the art really helps with that. Like when they get to the the magical town for the first time mm-hmm. and go into that shop with the beautiful tree going up the center of the shop and stuff. Uh, and again, I've seen, I've seen that exact image over and over again because these are such well-trodden waters, but it really adds that extra flair when you can say with confidence, and this is the most beautiful I've seen it rendered. It genuinely does help. I also noticed, and this is so, the moment you read this, you're like, doy, of course, because her biggest art inspirations are Alphonse Musha, Mobius, Miyazaki, and Moto Hagio. It's so oh. visible in, in her art that those are her like big inspos. It reminds me of a hyper manga version of Trunkle's artwork. Oh, it's yeah. It's got a similar kind of decorative feel to it and the way that the panels are broken out and so on. This one's a lot more kind of sort of simultaneously a lot more and a lot less formal than Trunkle's artwork. There are a couple of like really, really lovely panel layouts that I wanted to sort of uh, highlight. Let's see if I can find them. Because again, it goes for very kind of like decorative, unusual panel layouts sometimes, but they're always legible. Yeah, I, I was never confused. Yeah, and they always serve the plot nicely, I think. I'm just going to check my book. 77. 77. Oh yeah, where she's just been introduced to the... The apprentices that's right it begins in 77 so if you flip over to the next page um you've got that lovely kind of impressionistic panel at the bottom oh the, yeah that has that sort of dark design behind it where she's thinking about forbidden spells and it's sort of represented as this sort of tangle of um kind of tentacles and patterns and all that kind of stuff and i thought it was a lovely kind of decorative expression of emotion mm-hmm. that gave you a sense of darkness and if you flick over to the next page after that there are a couple of lovely layouts where you can see they're talking about the history of magic and how it led to war. And the witch in the background is literally drawing these spells on the ground that become a planet, that form a panel, and then uh, the, the artist uses the negative space to then draw a kind of a charred battleground. Oh, that's so beautiful. Yeah. Just such a lovely and inventive use of panels. But again, it didn't Whilst I was reading it, I wasn't sort of thinking that. It was just sort of like, oh, there's a panel of a witch drawing on the ground. There's a panel of the of the mentor character talking. There's a panel of a child battleground. And then it all comes together after you've read it into this lovely hole. Very nicely done. This manga to me definitely reads almost like part manga, part art book, where you read it for the story and then you like go through it and then you... Sh- 
you flick back a couple of pages and then you go like, oh, wow, okay, now I see it. Yeah, absolutely. And that that's lovely. Like if you're doing decorative panel layouts, I think that's exactly how they should work. They shouldn't interfere with the reading experience, but they should enhance it and prop it up and turn it into something special. I guess that overall, this is, this is sort of, we're sort of saying similar thing. This is an, an instance of a not particularly special plot executed in a really special way. Yeah, where, again, where I can't stress enough, at least for me, that had it not been for the art, I would just not be married to this. Because <laughs> one of my other points is that it's an exposition lore dump. It mm-hmm. establishes much too much, much too soon. Yeah, absolutely. And we were talking about that recently, weren't we? Yeah, we, we absolutely were, because this has kind of been a running thing where we have... <laughs> I even wrote, commits the cardinal sin of pages with just world building. Which, (laughs) I know, again, I can stress enough that this is, of course, personal taste, and I'm not saying that my opinion is the law, because it it absolutely isn't, and I I very much respect that some people are super horny for this stuff. But I had a similar conversation, because recently I've been playing Cyberpunk by CG Projekt Red, uh, which is a game I was very hesitant about even dipping my toes into with all the controversy, but I'm nothing if not a gamer giving something a chance. (laughs) (laughs) And that game suffers from some of the same things where it kind of feels like the creator slash creators are so worried that you're not going to be gripped and interested by their idea within the very first couple of hours of your journey into it that they're just like, here, have like 500 things at once. In Cyberpunk, it was like 5,000 different tutorials. So it actually took me 10 hours to realize I even have crafting because I was just like overwhelmed with feedback from the game of every fucking thing it offers me. And with this manga, it's like, here's the entire world, uh, study it. It will be on the test next week because if you don't remember it now, well, it sucks to be you 10 volumes later because then it's gonna become relevant again. <laughs> and it, I'm, I'm not saying that this is the case because I don't know, but that is something I've experienced far too much to not be very wary of it. Yeah, I fully get this. This feels like somebody who came up with their magic system first and then built their world around it. And that's a it's another manga thing I've noticed. There are there are several kind of manga I've read that where it's clearly someone's so proud of their magic system and their their world that that's the thing that they really focus on in in the storytelling. And just for anybody who hasn't read the book and this is full spoilers, the secret that we alluded to in the blurbs that we were writing is that anybody can make magic, but it requires an act of very delicate and precise drawing and a series of sort of interlocking symbols that tell the spell what to do. But because anyone can do it and because it's so devastatingly powerful, it created a world which was rife with war and destruction until it had been reduced to just a few sort of like magicians, presumably absolutely sick of killing each other, who decided to start an order of magicians who kept the secret of this universal skill behind this public idea that you can only practice magic if you're born to it. And it's it's a cool concept, but it's a flimsy one. And I think it's demonstrated by the kind of casualness with which the main character finds out about it. I mean, this witch, who supposedly is tasked with guarding a secret that could destroy the world, it's the equivalent of handing an atomic weapon to a toddler, (laughs) is like, sets a young girl who is deeply curious about magic to guard the door whilst he's performing forbidden spells or like magic that you shouldn't, like that nobody should know how it's being cast. And of course she peeks. (laughs) He might as well have invited her to peek. 
And I don't know whether that becomes a plot point later, uh, that this character is is sort of slapdash and careless, but he doesn't give that impression. He's quite a kind of a delicate, precise, deliberate character in the way that he does things. And as a setup, it's all just a bit paper thin. But see, this is where... Okay, I kind of want to, I hate the term devil's advocate, but this is where I kind of want to devil's advocate this because this brings me straight to a page that I bookmarked, which is page 18, where Coco is doing her skill set, which is being a seamstress. She is lining this piece of cloth. She is suddenly very serious, precise, and good about it. And he notices, he immediately picks like, Damn, girl is good at what she does. Mm. I would not be surprised if they throw the okie doke in later that he was like, I couldn't fail but notice that you were really good. So I would have offered you apprenticeship anyway. It just happened to come about in the shitty way where you then ended up turning magic on your literal mom. Yeah, I fully feel that. And for anyone who's watched the 90s Conan animated series, it's basically the same storyline as that, but she accidentally turns her mom into rock rather than an evil wizard. I love that moment. Yeah, and I I super see where you're coming from about how it feels a little... I guess not fully fleshed out. It seems like a second thought in a way, some of these bullet points in the story. But like I said, I'm hoping that I'm not lending the comic too much credit of saying that I think he would have offered her an apprenticeship anyway. She just happened to come about it in a really devastating way. I think I was getting that vibe from it as well. I just mean it's less that specific moment and more what that overall sequence sort of highlights is that the exceeding impractical difficulty of keeping this kind of secret with this many magic users, it feels like a world that's built around a concept that the consequences of which the author hasn't fully worked through, if that makes sense. And this comes back round to the kind of cultural world building that I was talking about last episode, where you think about not just what you want your world to look and feel like and what you want it to contain, but the impact that has on the characters, the lives they live, the social relationships that they have with each other, the class relationships that they have with each other. And and this feels like concept first, think about that stuff later. To be fair, this is just volume one. It you know, it might wow in that respect down the line, but it it didn't at this point. Again, I'm being overly nitpicky. It's still a fun concept. And it it provides that kind of this do you not think that this kind of storytelling is like catnip for people? This secret hidden world that you, the main character, or through the main character, get to be given access to. Especially this sort of wizard school formula, which has been going round and round since Le Guin wrote Earthsea, which is sort of the first wizard school story I could think of. Yeah, I, I definitely see that this hits um I've I've made it my <laughs> My life plight to not mention that uh, which shall not be named, especially on this <laughs> this everlasting podcast. Oh, well, given that that's an incredibly generic recreation of a ton of pre-existing stuff, um, I mean, let's just talk about the worst witch instead. Have you ever... Uh... No, but my, my point... My point sadly touches upon this specific franchise because I think when that ship especially fucking crashed into the iceberg and sunk because of its uh, terrible creator, that it left this big hollow room for a lot of people with a need to fill because, you know, it's undeniable that that was a childhood for a lot of people. It's like someone just mm. suddenly pissed all over Pokemon for me. And I can super see that this is a very welcomed placeholder and new generation for that. And I have no issues with that. I just think that I am one of those people who, when I've been introduced to a, a similar concept numerous times, I get a little tired of it, no matter the concept, like no matter what genre. It's not because this is fantasy, even though that like undeniably isn't one of my main genres. I, I have nothing against that in itself. It's just that 
Yeah, I don't know. It's it's like we both touched upon several times. This is definitely just a volume one. And I knew going into this conversation that I would come across as overly critical for something I've just read one volume of. And there are several people who's probably screaming now like, oh my God, but he gets so good at volume 10. And it's like, yeah, that's <laughs> that's fair. But I am a big believer something shouldn't take 10 volumes to become good. <laughs> Yeah, I agree. I really think, you know, you need to come out of the gate strong. And I wonder, like, this this is one of those books. I wish I'd read this when I was, like, 16, oh, 18. Dude, same. Something like that. I would have been so deeply into it because the plot concepts might have been more novel to me. I might not have, like, seen that group of characters that many times. Mm-hmm. Just imagine the world and the characters feeling fresh to you at the same time as that art, like, gut-punching you would have been a really, really... And, and maybe that's why it's so popular. Maybe that's ma- the majority of the audience are people who haven't yet become a little bit jaded by these tropes. But maybe, and I've been wondering this lately, maybe the insane level of access to any fiction you want to read is changing people's relationships to things like tropes in story writing. When I grew up with stories... Finding a a plot like this, although we joke about wizard schools being very, very common, finding a plot like this was a rarity. You know, I used to treasure the epic fantasy series that I read because I couldn't just eat them until I was full. And there is so much media out there, so, so much, that it's like these ideas are almost like playgrounds. And I think people kind of, I wonder whether younger readers just have a different relationship with the kind of setup side of a comic. It's like, oh, Natch, I'm familiar with these. What's the twist going to be? And they're waiting for that rather than prejudging. Yeah, maybe. Maybe you're right. I hadn't thought about it like that. I mean, I always love to resolve around to maybe we're just jaded old bitches to <laughs> everything <laughs> where we're over- overly critical. <laughs> It's also interesting that you touched upon the fact that it must be catnip for people to experience this kind of hidden secret through a main character, because this also brings me to another point that I wrote down on the more negative side is that I'm personally very over the bland main character. It's the same in a lot of shoujo and shounen manga, where the main character is left relatively blank so you can do a self-insert. And I get, again, that this the target audience isn't like a, a mid-30s hag like myself i get that it's for more hopeful youthful <laughs> lovely aspiring people and not someone ready to fucking crumble into dust in a second but i don't read these stories to self-insert myself i read them because i want to see fun characters or interesting or even broken characters like fuck give me give me some sassy ass mean ass bitch that has a character art that I really do not jive with the first couple of volumes, only to have me turn around later on. Don't give me this bland ass, oh, the biggest crime she commits to me in this volume is the, oh, but I'm gonna be friends with my rival because I'm certain she loved me. It's just like, bitch, if someone behaved to me like Agate behaves to Coco, I would... (sighs) I would be furious. Yeah, she's your kind of quintessential, totally blank, naive, sweet. I mean, she's, again, let's hop back to Uzumaki. She's basically the character from Uzumaki, <sighs> willing to absorb it all. And she does display a teensy tiny bit of darkness here. Like, after what she just does to her mum, she sort of says, you know, I want to learn all of the nasty forbidden magic. I'm going to do it. Which was a, a sort of an interesting, headstrong thing for her to do. But that's... That and, and what you mentioned, but the only kind of moments where she wasn't just kind of this sweet character. 
But it's, and again, it's, it's all in execution. Have you read Fruits Basket? Yes, or sorry, I haven't read much of it, but I watched all of the old anime. Right. This character reminds me a little bit of Toru, but where Toru is really unique and like she is despite her background and like she is almost to a, a fault, this character doesn't, it's just sort of like it. We don't know much about her background. Her mum seems okay, possibly absent father. No, isn't the dad dead? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. We haven't really explored her background to, to a huge extent. So it may be that there is a more complex character underneath there, but nothing that leaps out at you straight away. Do you have any kind of like bookmarks or moments that stood out to you in, in the plot in a positive way? Uh, yeah, the the one that I already pointed out with the... With where she's doing her seamstress stuff because that really grasped me uh, with the pacing. It's it's the thing that I'm just such a sucker for when the artist allows the panels to flow and actually take time to show an action because in many comics this would be two panels and on this it's like one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight panels on one page, which is already a lot of mm. panels in such a tiny page because manga pages are smaller. The fact that she takes the time to show her laying out the fabric, smoothing it out, grabbing the chalk, dragging the chalk, taking a breath to steady herself, then dragging the chalk properly across the the whole fabric, exhaling in relief, and then reacting to Kifrey looking at her. All in one page is like, that is eye candy to me. Mm, really beautifully done. I've left myself a note on this page. It just says, mmm, fabric. <laughs> Because this is the stuff that makes me believe in her world. This makes me believe in her character. She shows through action and drawing alone that she is adequate at this. This is her confidence. This is her comfort zone. I get a glimpse of who she is. And then you have another thing that I actually pointed out where I immediately went like, because it immediately dragged me out of it again, which is page 42, where the character Kifri has thought bubbles like actual thought bubbles this made me want to ask you what are your no pun intended thoughts on thought bubbles in comics (laughs) i like it when they're used casually and liberally and i like it when they're used with a really specific narrative device in mind like giving us access to a particular character's thoughts for a really specific reason i don't know maybe they're a telepath or something like that Mm -hmm. but i'm not a fan of the way that they're employed here which is just when the author clearly wants you to know something but the character doesn't want to speak it so they just stick a random thought bubble in (laughs) and it doesn't matter whether it's the point of view character or anyone else they'll just go for it (laughs) i'm so sorry i feel really mean for laughing that heartfelt at it but you you kind of nailed my thought of it as well I, I feel like this is such a silly conversation because we used the thought the word thought all over again for thought bubbles so it's like thuh, 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 thuh. but <laughs> the the thing that manga does much more uh, eloquently in my opinion or elegantly is they are much more fond of using the squares to illustrate inner dialogue from characters oh. and I think they yeah. work so much better because they remind me more of a movie narrative where you have a I, I personally am very hit or miss with voiceover in general, be it like in comic or in movies or in video games. It can either be very like Clint Eastwood and a Western feeling and suddenly become like almost a little goofy. But yeah. in especially deeper ones where you really need that insight in a character to understand their emotional state, it can really lend itself artistically to a manga or a comic in general, I believe. And I don't know, I think Thought Bubbles... They're kind of reserved for Donald Duck and stuff to me. 
because <laughs> it's kind of those where you have to be economical and you have to be like exclamation mark the question mark kind of dorky outlook where it doesn't jar with the tone of the story but in stuff like this i'm immediate that's why i wanted to say like juxtaposed to the beautiful scene of her doing the fabric it's suddenly just like Bruh! am i reading donald duck all of a sudden like what's happening here yeah and it, I, again I, I don't know sort of how how much work this artist has done before um whether they're just hyper talented and young or whether this is like their 10th rodeo or something but there were moments that of like storytelling or employment of particular kind of narrative devices like that that just seemed a little naive and immature perhaps or like you know they were just expedient at the time and they don't really care about that kind of thing one or the other i did want to juxtapose that lovely scene that you talked about with a scene later where she's in the middle of a trial that she's been shoved in by her rival before that she's ready to take it on and she's not all that great at using these quill ones that they use to write their magic and hers has gotten all damp and crap anyway but then she remembers that she's got her own kind of expertise and magic and it the sequence recalls that moment with another lovely sequence where she prepares some sailcloth to draw some magic on. And the reason why I was thinking of this is because this is a moment where there is technically a thought bubble here, but it is a memory of... What's, I can't pronounce his name, the um, tutor character. Keyfrey? I say Keyfrey. Keyfrey. Of Keyfrey, like, bending over her. Uh, he's remembering. She's remembering a lesson, and the text is set inside the illustration of him, and you can hear it, like, ringing in her head. And that's so beautiful and elegant as a way to illustrate and bring out a thought quite instead of, of jarring it actually made me feel a little emotional about her skills and, and the realization that she had it's funny when you have and we've, we've discussed this before with, with other books a creator capable of really like intensely wonderful delivery that just also has like a casual mode where they just don't seem to care <laughs> that's something i think about every single time we we double down and get a little critical about something is that i am hyper aware that i too as a creator do a million mistakes or several things that won't jive with everybody and this is where i always feel like i really have to preface that this is so subjective because there are people who will see this and not remotely think of it and they will just be like okay part of the story and then just move on and then there's you and me who you know are jaded old bitches <laughs> <laughs> yeah but if we weren't how would we talk for like an hour about these things no exactly exactly <laughs> i'm I, I say it with care i don't mean it as a derogatory i mean it affectionately yeah there was also a, another thing that i wanted to ask you about because on page 60 and 61 she has very newly turned her mother into a rock and Keyfrey has grabbed her and he's like you done you done fucked up sunny boy jim and again talking about stuff that's subjective but this is where the this these kind of stories tend to lose me because this is where i personally wish the story just dared to delve in how tragic and terrible and terrifying this is and instead it immediately kind of dissolves the tension with slapstick humor she's like kicking kifri in the face and having these like super over the top facial expressions and then on page 61, she's back to being super scared again because he kind of gives her a reality check. This brought me back to one of the reasons why I also struggle with stuff like Full Metal Alchemist because a lot of this kind of toned manga and anime does this where it's like, we're super fucking heavy and pretentious now. And I'm like, no, but that's fine. That's fine. I dig it. You're allowed to have a really somber moment linger 
you don't need to be like ha ha poo poo pee pee fart fart to to make me completely tonal whiplash out of it yeah this is something i see in a lot of sort of mainstream films as well especially like mcu films where it's almost like the writers are afraid of pathos they have to undercut really intense emotion with some form of humor or joke or something like that and i must admit i'm quite comfortable with this kind of like extreme chibi humor because it was the kind of the kind of stuff I grew up, it reminded me a lot of like 90s stuff. And it's interesting that you mentioned Full Metal Alchemist, because again, that was, that's one that uses that sort of like chibi humor a lot. It's comfortable to me. Mm-hmm. So I often just don't notice it happening. Um, but I did actually mark out that particular spread because it was very odd that she's just effectively killed her mother and she's throwing a chibi rage fit. Yeah, because she seems too old for that. Yes. Yeah. And again, that sort of really, that highlights people uh, like the the creator perhaps just finding their feet. Because there's another instance that I've marked out on page 47, where I absolutely loved the same thing employed in a different context. It's where she's just drawn her first magic circle. And we get this lovely, beautiful moment of how shocked and, and in awe she is. And then she immediately like flips out and just has a sort of an excited bounce around her room. And I thought that was so sort of exuberant. And that emotional beat from one serious moment to a kind of a fun comedy moment worked in that case. 100% where it agree. Didn't in the other case. I, I feel like I'm so repetitive because I keep going like, I know it's subjective, but I'm just... I, I think I'm just hyper aware that a lot of people love this and I sound like I absolutely hate it, which again, I really didn't. I just expected something more from it because it's once again the trap of me thinking that, oh, but if so many people adore it to this extent, there must be something there. But I, you know, it's me, a big fucking idiot. I never learned that when that is the case, it necessarily isn't for me. And I'm not saying that that even is the case here, because this might be for me, you know? I, I might really enjoy it down the line, and I will definitely read Volume 2 and 3, and then even get back to you and say if I think it's personally worth for us to pick back up when it's finalized or now. Nah. Oh, that's an idea. Yeah, for, for manga that we agree that we want to do more than one volume of, it might be fun to come back and do another episode down the line, especially contrasting it with the earlier, like perhaps we could re-listen to, to the previous episode and sort of say, oh, how naive we were. <laughs> or, oh, look, yeah. that, that was borne out entirely. That might be fun. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, because there's glimpses. What I, what I want from this, what I want from the future of this story is more of that cloth moment, more of that subtlety, more of that immersion in the character's genuine expertise and maybe after the lore dumps we'll get that maybe that's what we need the lore dumps for in this episode so that we can sit with the characters later displaying their skill and understand what they're doing and i really hope that's the case because there are instances where this kind of storytelling is done really nicely i'm thinking of other manga here we're going to eventually do an episode on delicious in dungeon yeah that's one that spends a very long time with lore building but for me, that's one of the pleasures of reading it rather than a barrier. So it'll be really interesting to see how you respond to that one. The funny thing is I have read it, but I don't remember much of it because it, it was also back in like 2019. Oh, okay, right. Well, it'd be fun to re- revisit that one. But I, genu- I genuinely think that sometimes like high expectations can be the death of enjoyment. Yeah, no, I, I 100% agree with you there. <laughs> and that is where I'm very happy that I am old and reflected enough to know that in myself, that if I bring high expectations to the table, or even when I don't immediately like something right away, I very often end up liking it a lot down the road. And I am luckily one of those people who have no issue swallowing camels. I'm just like, oh, no, you know, I was really critical to this, but it really won me over. 
that isn't like a character loss for me. I know some people will die on those hills. And I'm just like, you're lost, buddy. But that that is just not a hilltop for me to even remotely crawl up on. I If I end up enjoying this, I will say, you know what? I was wrong. Or my initial response was because of XYZ and that has since withered away. Yeah, I'm definitely, definitely interested to revisit this at some point. <laughs> I've just seen a note that I've got. On page 29, my note just reads, hat flex. It's when he first introduces his <laughs> wizard's hat. Oh, sorry, his uh, witch's hat. And it just reminded me of Step by Buddy Step when we were talking about like flexing your hat on. Yeah, yeah, the emperor when he like flops up his hat. Yeah, absolutely. It's got a similar vibe. Do you feel like he's a bit of a show-off character? I really feel like he, once again, he really is that Kakashi type to me who comes across as very easygoing and earns your trust. And then there is some deep fucked up shit about him that by the time that gets turn around, you're like, oh, but he's such a good guy. I know he killed an entire village of children, but he's such a good guy. I swear, you guys, can't you see how he, like, adopted these four apprentices and, like, really made them good witches? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I get you. I've written a note that he reminds me of my guitar teacher. I learned electric guitar from, like, quite a young age. I started lessons at about 11, so I was really incompetent. But my guitar teacher just used to really enjoy, in the middle of a session where we were learning something basic, suddenly ripping out an incredible advanced guitar solo that just had me with my jaw on the floor <laughs> wanting to learn more. And he's a bit like that. He keeps on being like, ah, the world of magic, so lovely. You can do stuff like this. Produces beautiful rose out of water in the air, you know? <laughs> he also, just like probably your teacher, he's also someone who probably just loves his craft. Oh, yeah, that did come across. It's nice. And that, that, I think that little element of his character is one of the more uh, sort of unique, I think, or well-considered parts of... The, the storytelling as far as the characters are concerned in this. Another point I wanted to mention, which I felt so seen by this, it's even mentioned in the back. Again, I don't know, since we clearly have different editions, I do not know if this is mentioned at the back of yours, but here it says, this story was sparked by a casual comment from a friend who mentioned that the process of bringing illustration into the world seemed just like magic. And this is not verbatim, but literally what I have said all these years to like on stream when I'm streaming or to friends where I'm getting like really passionate about the craft of making drawings is that to me creativity is like the last little bit of magic that we have on this hellscape of a flying rock. You create something from effectively nothing, especially with both drawing and I would also argue writing. Either way, you start with something blank, be it in Photoshop or in Word or on a piece of paper or a typing machine. But you start with components, basically, if your typewriter and your ink and your paper are your components, and then your creativity in you is like the, the switch. And then when you put all of that together, you get magic because you created something basically out of nothing. Mm. You know, weirdly enough, I didn't pick up on that whilst reading this, but that's literally the setup, isn't it? That's the vibe I was getting where I thought the author had spent more time on the magic system, perhaps, than the actual initial plot setup. Mm -hmm. Because there is all that kind of care with which they explain that the magic works only with the special ink and the special pen and the precision and all that kind of stuff. It really does echo that process of creation that you were talking about. That's nice. If that comes out more emotionally in the future volumes, then... I know this story is going to really get me because I am a sucker for stories about storytelling and creativity. 
Yeah, there was that one moment that got me emotionally and thinking about it, it was that moment that was about her learnt skill. And this is the kind of thing it feels like only somebody with their own learnt skill could really communicate to this level. And that coming through in the plot is something special. Yeah, I I have to actually admit that I am a little excited to pick up volume two and give it a go because... Having talked about it with you now, because I've have I've been sitting the two last days and I haven't told anyone because I'm always like, listen to the podcast, I don't want to spoil it to you. <laughs> so I've had, I've had to sit here alone and simmer in my feelings about this. Having talked about it and like blarged out the stuff that I wasn't too keen on with you, I can tell that my my thorns are kind of coming off and I am warming up to it. I'm like, okay, I'm ready. I Now that I know that it isn't what I expected it to be, and I don't even know what I expected it to be. I just didn't expect it to be basically witchy Naruto. Yeah. <laughs> now that I know that, I can put all of those emotions behind me and instead embrace it for what it actually is. I'm actually a little curious that if volume two and three turns out to be more promising, at least for me, Maybe we could do volume two to five or something down the line, like either way later this year or next year or something, and just see either how wrong or how right we were in terms of our own opinions about this. Yeah, I'd love that. Absolutely. Just just tell me if you enjoy them, because this is a super breezy read as well. It's probably worth mentioning that I actually only started reading this after my afternoon nap. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I ripped through the first volume, and I don't see that as a downside. I think that means that the reading experience, for the most part, was very smooth. Yeah. There are only a couple of times where I sort of like hiccuped a bit, and they were deliberate moments, actually, where the story wasn't so clear for a plot reason that you realise later, like when they vanish in the alley. Okay. <laughs> Just looking through my other notes, uh, I have page 129, toilet, exclamation mark. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty, pretty radical that they're showing how they poop. Yeah, I love that. Because not only, I was, I was talking about this with, is it 129? Have I missed no, it's not a 129. Maybe it's... Oh, no, it is on 129. It's just really small. It's a lot of go by the by. You mean 129? Yeah, so 129. Oh, right. Th- this is when she asked to take the toilet... Sorry, sorry, you're right. She wants to take the toilet with her as, like, equipment into the portal. I thought when she was yeah. actually had used the toilet, because that shook me more. It's revealed that they use some sort of portal magic to poop into space, <laughs> which I fucking love. Because on page 106 is the actual toilet, and you just stare into the void on the very first panel. (laughs) (gasps) Did I miss that? I think I might have accidentally skipped a page. Wow. Imagine missing the action of the poo-poo. Oh, I missed it. Right. She literally said, it just disappeared into the void. It just uh, it's just one of those moments where people talk about like portal magic all of the time and it's a joke but it's a nice little grounded in-world vision of a practical solution because it takes something that's everyday in their world and turns it into an innovative tool and I like that kind of more grounded world building with magic. Absolutely and I have to say I <laughs> I think you can tell this was made by a woman because Men seem to think that women don't poop, and women are always so (laughs) eager to talk about all the quote-unquote less flattering things the human body does, and the fact that she was like, no, 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 we have magic, and we poop. I think that's just very refreshing. (laughs) Yeah. 
And come to think of it, like, I've never thought about how my characters poop in my story. <laughs> <laughs> See, it's not to not to call you out on your gender, but it's a gender thing because I've been thinking about yeah. I'm definitely going to have bathroom scenes in my story just because... Oh, no way, really. Yeah, because I get very won over because, you know, going to the toilet is very intimate, right? And, and not like a sexy intimate. I mean, unless that's your yum and I'm not about to yuck it, but I'm just like generally saying oh. that. <laughs> Uh, going to the bathroom is this, you're very vulnerable. My big nightmare is having a big dookie and someone just like, hello, coming in. And I'm just like, mid poop and I can't <laughs> get away. So when a, yeah. when in a creative space, you're showed like even in a movie or in a comic or in a video game that someone is actually like relieving themselves. It, it doesn't have to be like, I don't need to hear the ploink of the poop or I don't have to see the squinting, shrugging face, but just seeing a person with like their floats down to like either the knees or ankles or whatever your preference is and you're they're clearly doing their their due diligence that's yeah i i immediately trust that character more i'm like okay we we have shared a moment we have had the holy bathroom moment together in my head i've got this sort of like subconscious thing where i've never really articulated it but in my head it's appropriate to show that kind of thing in certain kinds of stories, but not other kinds of stories. Maybe that's just because like, it's often the case that you don't find it in particular kind of stories. And I find that you don't get that sort of detail in fantasy much. It feels, and maybe that's subconsciously part of the reason I didn't put any of that kind of stuff in my fantasy story, because you don't go to the loo in fantasy. Gandalf doesn't shit, you know? <laughs> I think as both a cis woman and someone who has like the most sensitive stomach on planet Earth, I can't help but be a little passionate about the bowel movements and everything mm. else gross that leaves your body every month. <laughs> so for me, yeah. it's always like, oh my god, I would literally fucking die in Game of Thrones just because of my period alone, dude. Like, I wouldn't live there more than a month. <laughs> yeah. But to bring it all the way back to the comic, another positive point that I made is that this manga has like a lot of big black surfaces in it where it's just like a lot of filled in blacks in shades or the environment or stuff like that. And it, it kind of gave me a similar vibe as Mike Mignola, but his work is so angular and harsh in a beautiful way. Like I fucking love Mignola's work. It's just a chef's kiss. And for people who don't know, he's the Hellboy artist. This has some of the similar vibe, but somehow Kamame makes it look so soft and round and mm. not harsh in the same way. Even though there are panels with almost all black, it's still this nice little round off of it that really grabs me because I love big shades of black in work and I, I really wish I dared to work more with it myself. But I always had the feeling that it was very too the Mignola territory, where it is very dramatic and angular and heavy. And somehow I just don't get that vibe in Witch Hat Atelier. It's interesting you mentioned that because I didn't even notice the amount of spot blacks in this. And you're right, there are tons. I'm just flicking through right now and going, oh, well, yeah. I think it's partly because it's so carefully used to create silhouettes and shapes that support the layout. And I'm just appreciating now, looking back at the artwork without reading the story at the same time how much detail and cross-hatching oh, yeah. there is in a lot of these but it's never heavy it doesn't have that kind of you know i spent 10 hours shading the upper lip feel 
Not to put anyone on blast, but... No, no. You you know, there is that sort of, you know, when you get those, like a manga artist who loves drawing Wolverine, but will draw every single vein in Wolverine's (laughs) neck. When all of Wolverine looks like a giant fucking dick. Yes. uh, Yeah, absolutely. And if you go to, like, page 182, there's a really lovely moment where she notices the sort of potentially evil witch who gave her the spellbook of forbidden spells when she was younger silhouetted in the alley mm-hmm. and that use of spot black to create that silhouette was amazing yeah like just drew your eye straight to it in a page that's relatively light it feels ominous frames the shape of the of the hat and the eye in the center of the hat really nicely I was trying to do a similar scene actually where a character saw another character in an alleyway and it was really hard to pull off that reminds me that I also wanted to say that w- another thing I really love in this is the designs because I do think all the characters are beautiful and they're e- easy to tell apart. And especially the quote-unquote evil witch or whatever they're supposed to be. Their mask thing is just, that's my kind of catnip when you have someone who's dangerous and mysterious and masked and they're ominous. And yeah, I really like the witch. <laughs> Everyone is so beautiful. <laughs> They've all got, like, giant, lovely eyes that are shining all of the time and beautifully coiffed hair. And she's just, I think she just catches a glimpse of that beautiful boy who's clearly going to be a character later on. I really hope it's not going to be a love interest. Oh, it sort of feels like it. No, but I want them to be gay, Paul. Can't you understand? (laughs) Maybe I'm making an assumption. Maybe it isn't a boy. Let's be real. It's probably a a, a boy and it's probably a love interest. Kifrey himself is also very effeminate, right? He's, yeah, he's got that classic pretty boy look. The kind of character I would have been obsessed with Kifrey as a as like a sixteen year old. Yeah, because uh, as a sixteen year old, all the other boys are like, "Oh my god, he's such a homo!" And then he's the one eating the most pussy ever. I was just unabashedly attracted to men like that in in stuff. I was too, but I turned out to be a lesbian, so I think there's like a <laughs> there's a Venn diagram here. <laughs> We're such serious. We're such serious professional uh, an- analytics. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, very, very professional. Oh my god, he's so pretty. <laughs> I don't know if you do. You feel we kind of like wound to a natural conclusion here, or yeah, because I, I firmly feel that with just one volume under the belt, there's only so much we can say before we're either walking in circles or we're kind of unnecessarily ripping it apart. Yeah, yeah next episode we will be talking about the walking man which is a story that i read first when i was very young so it's going to be a really interesting sort of like change in our usual formula yeah who is it by oh sorry (laughs) yeah it's by jiro taniguchi who is a huge creator over in japan but has never really culturally kind of like exported over here none of his books have particularly taken off Uh, yeah so it's going to be really interesting for me because I've not really talked to many people who've read this. It's been not exactly a private experience, but just just an experience that I've more or less kept to myself. So yeah, I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, I'm super eager because again, I have no idea what I'm going to, but this time I also, I don't, I I haven't really been able to attach any expectations to it. I only have your word to, to go by that you really enjoy it. So I'm very I'm very ready to just let it wash over me. I don't bring the same kind of pre-worked up excitement or whatever that I did for Witch Hat Atelier. 
I'm very neutral. Right, right, yeah. The whole world hasn't told you it's incredible. <laughs> exactly. <or something>, because, <laughs> I, yeah. I told some of my art friends that we were doing an episode on Witch Hat, and they were like, oh my god, I'm going to listen to episode. And I was like, ew, ew, uh. oh, no. Well, we're, oh, we're not going to be art friends anymore, don't. I guess. Yeah, 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 yeah. I guess that's it. I guess it's time to say, I hope you join us again for another podcast, and bye. Bye. Next week, we will be uh, reading The Walking Man. Oh, God, I said next week. Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, There's uh. our blurb. <sighs> One of those things where uh, it's, it's uh, you know, like, you know, the Pokemon theme by heart. I know the intro to Conan the Barbarian, the animated series by heart. <laughs> Are we upping our uh, future Patreon that not only will I sing the Pokemon song with customized lyrics, but you will sing the, the Conan theme song with customized oh, yeah. lyrics? Absolutely. It's not not exactly a, uh, a theme song. It's more of a monologue. But yeah, I will do it. Okay. Okay, good. So uh, give us money. <laughs> <laughs>